You're listening to audio from Grace Community Church in Anger, North Carolina. More information about Grace Community Church can be found at graceccnc.org. Good morning. My name is Brad Talley. I'm the uh, teaching elder here. I'm trying to remember exactly what I do here. I'm the teaching elder at Grace Community Church. My wife told me this morning it's going to be a hot day, and I thought she said, wear something hot pink or something, I guess. So I got a little confused, but we're really glad you're here. If this is your first time, and I, I see some of you I haven't seen before, which doesn't mean that it's uh, your first time necessarily, but if it is your first time, we extend to you a very special welcome. For those of you who have been coming for a little bit and you're sort of checking out grace, whether or not this is the place that the Lord wants you to settle, a couple of things coming up over the next two weeks. David mentioned them earlier, and most likely, if you're a visitor, you were here then, but just in case. Discovery lunch next Sunday after the service. We'll have elders, staff members, and it's an informal thing. Nobody's going to have to go around and introduce yourselves. Not that. We're just sitting at tables together, and we will... Uh, just informally get to know one another like that. And then beginning the following week at 8.30 on Sunday mornings, we will have child care available for this. We begin our Grace Connection class, which is sort of a new member's uh, class. It goes for four weeks. You need to be at least at three of those if you t- intend to join at some uh, time in the future. Or, or if you just want to come and find out what we believe, uh, how our church leadership is structured, elder rule, elder-led church is different for a lot of people. And so you want to understand how we understand that or why we have come to that conclusion in Scripture, how we function as a church, that would be a good time uh, to, to be there. And I know a lot of travel plans in the summer, so if you're saying, you know, we'd only be there for two, talk to us because... We'd like to work it out, uh, and back in, in, when we get back to August, we'll be going back to two services, and so uh, we want to do this in June, and if you would like to be a part of it, we will want you to be a part of it. Uh, just really appreciated uh, Jim McLaughlin's uh, message last week on Mephibosheth and David. I, he had told me what he was going to say, but... Uh, even hearing him talk about the people coming to the table, being brought to the table, uh, it was very emotional. And I appreciate Warren Wiersbe. He mentioned him several times. He, from the earliest days, Warren Wiersbe had a major impact on the way that I understand Scripture. Um, one last word before I jump into uh, the message. Uh, Ricky said that at the end of the service, we'll have another offering. It's a benevolence offering. I'm not going to mention at the end, so I will say something about it now. Uh, Once a month, we take up an offering that is designed just to help people in need. That goes first to people in our body, but then it goes well outside the body too. A lot of people outside our body receive um, help in a time of need. And who knows when any of us is going to be in a time... All of us are going to be in a time of need at some point. Uh, So help if you are led of the Lord to do that. It's not one of those deals where we'll keep taking offerings until we get enough. So I I promise you that. It's just once a month. 
You ever uh, missed something that was right in front of your eyes? One time I was on the phone with my daughter, talking to her on the phone, and I was looking all over the house. I was so frustrated because I couldn't find my phone. You ever ha that ever happened to you? Or, or your glasses, you know, were on top of your head, that kind of thing. And you just, where are they? Where did I, I, I leave them? Uh, maybe you were looking around for your spouse or your children or your parents, and you're looking all over the place, and they're, like, they're right there. And you just somehow miss them. There may be times in our lives when there is someone in our presence that we would really like to know and who would enrich our lives if only we took a little bit of time to get to know them or if we had any idea who it is that is in our presence. Our text today is John 5, 1 through 18. We're going through the Gospel of John, and we're at this point where we read a story that describes people who interacted with Jesus and yet missed the significance of their encounters with the Savior of the world because they totally misunderstood who he was. When Allison saw the title of this message this week, Missing Jesus, she said, I love those kinds of titles that can be one of two or three things. You know, it could be like Missing Waldo, you know, like Waldo is missing. But the point of this title is that there were people who were missing Jesus even though he was right in front of them. We do the same thing in our day. I, I follow this guy on Twitter, Lloyd Legalist. Uh, it's a sat satirical site, you know, this guy who's a recovering legalist, as many of us are here. And he had a church sign that said, we love hurting people. And I thought, yeah, that's one of those too, you know. Um, it could be read either way. Since most of today's text is a narrative followed by theological conversation and debate of the highest order and importance to all men and women, we're going to take time to work through this story before concluding with thoughts about the ways that people in the 21st century miss Jesus just the same way they did when he was in the land and among the people. Uh, keep in mind as we read that even believers confuse law and gospel. So the temptation to self-focus is just as great for believers as it is for those who don't know Jesus. I loved the, the prayers this morning, Leah and Jacob, uh, the prayer for, for them to be grounded in the word and to, and, and to put themselves under sound teaching and to um, have the courage to receive the gospel as well as give the gospel. Believers need to preach the gospel to themselves every day. So we're going to see all of that in this text this morning. Our reading is John chapter 5, verses 16 to 18. The text goes from 1 to verse 1 to uh, verse 18. Uh, but you'll understand as we read in just a moment that we are picking up in the middle of a larger story. It's our custom to stand as the scripture is read. So if you would please read, stand for the reading of the word. Dale, if there's, can we, is that possible back there? I'm sorry. Old man eyes. 
trying to get this uh, a little larger. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus. Because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, My father is working until now, and I am working. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Let's pray. Father, as we uh, move toward your word, and as we go into this text, in which we're going to see Jesus provoking the leaders of the people to persecute him and eventually to put him to death. We know that it's all part of your amazing plan because without his death, we have no life. And so, Father, we pray that you would open our hearts and minds as your word is before us this day. May we be receivers of the gospel and proclaimers and givers of the gospel. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. Be seated. Well, ever since the elders agreed that after the study of Isaiah, we would go into the gospel of John, I have been wondering how the Lord would lead me to present John chapter 5, to understand and then to preach John chapter 5. It recounts the story of the lame man by the pool of Bethesda. We're given in the first portion of John 5 a very detailed description of the pool of Bethesda in Jerusalem. It was by the sheep gate. Uh, it had five roofed colonnades or five covered porches. Just imagine there were, here's the way a lot of people think it was. There were two pools, may have been on two different levels, but there were two pools. There was a covered porch on either side of one pool, a covered porch on either side of the other, and a covered porch in the middle of these two pools. So um, it, it's thought that the, that the sick lay between the two pools on, under that covered uh, porch that, they, uh, that was there at, at the Pool of Bethesda. And there was a popular belief in the first century that on occasion an angel would stir the waters and the first per sick person into the pool would be healed. In addition to the twin pools being fed by the large reservoirs known as Solomon's Pools, there was likely uh, some underground spring activity that would cause the water to bubble up at, time, at times. And there's an, uh, there are some ancient accounts that the water was reddish, leading people to think these were mineral springs. And in fact, they were mineral waters or Calibiot waters. Isn't that really cool? Like our Calibiot springs. That's what may have been going on in Jerusalem. And there was some medicinal quality to, that was understood to be uh, why it was valuable to be in those pools. So you can understand why ancient people might have thought that there was something supernatural about the waters. When the waters would bubble up, it's like something's going on, the Lord's doing something, and they would jump in. Now, if you have a translation other than 
the ESV, the English Standard Version, which is what we use. The end of verse 3 and verse 4 states the reason for so many invalids in the pool was, or at the pools, was it the, the belief that on occasion an angel would stir up the waters and once again the first person in would be healed. You'll notice uh, in the ESV, it skips from chapter or verse 3 to verse 5. There's a whole lot going on here with translation, manuscripts, um, and it's, and many of the other translations besides the ESV will make a note. They think the best manuscripts do not include these two verses. It was kind of like a popular legend that was placed into it. Uh, I may say a lot more about this when we come to John chapter 8, but I may not. Believe me, if you've got, if you've got questions about this, I'd be happy to talk to you. Uh, sometime later. I'll just say this. Most scholars, including almost all theologically conservative scholars that I would agree with, do not believe that the end of verse 3 and verse 4 were in the original copy of John's gospel, which is why the ESV leaves it out. Leaves it out. And if you say, well, why does the NASB and the NIV, why do all those include it? Because there's just so much weight given to translation history. They might say, probably not here, but the King James had it there, so we're going to put it in. Man, I should have stayed out of those troubled waters, the red waters that are bubbling all around me. Might be something other than Calibian Springs. One thing is for certain. Most people of the day thought that there was something to the angel stirring the water that promoted healing. In fact, that's why a man who had been lame for 38 years was there. Uh, this, was, this was a good time to say this. Totally irrespective of what I just talked about with translations. Uh, but if you're here for the first time or the first few times, I may say something and you would be like, what? I've never heard that before. If you will stay here for a period of time, it's not that you will agree with everything that I say and that the elders would say from the, from the pulpit and the staff as they preach. But you will certainly understand, have a far better understanding of our understanding of the scripture if you'll give it time. The Bible was not written for the kind of in and out approach that we often take to it. John's arguments in this gospel are developed very carefully, methodically. You see it all, you see what's going on all the way because that's what Jesus' life was. He had a plan, <clears throat> he was making a point, and it took a long time to understand what he was saying. So let me just encourage you to hang in there. And like I say, if you have questions about what I said just said, then um, please feel free to ask. When we read that Jesus asked the man if he would like to be healed, what would you expect him to say? Yes, please. Uh, yes, of course I want to be healed. But instead, his response seems to have been more like, uh, who exactly is asking? I mean, yeah, I want to be healed. But when the water is stirred, you think I can get in in front of all these people, me being lame and everything? Do you see what my problem is here? I can't get in. The man had no expectation of being healed and apparently had no idea who it was that was asking him if he wanted to be healed. 
The lame man's identity seemed to be wrapped up in his disability. Jesus didn't respond to the complaint, but simply said, get up, take up your bed and walk. And the man instantly knew that he was healed. And he did exactly as he was told. He got up, took his mat, and walked. Now, there are a few interesting features of this miracle that are a bit out of the ordinary, though, although not necessarily out of the ordinary for John in his gospel. For starters, though, the man didn't ask Jesus to heal him. In fact, only one of the signs that, that, that John gives, miracles are called signs, only one of the signs is one in which a person asked to be healed. And we covered that at the end of John chapter 4. The nobleman asked for his son to be healed. Everything else John uh, records Jesus is just doing. He just performs these miracles or gives these signs as to uh, who he is by what he does. So furthermore, the layman didn't respond with gratitude. Now, neither was he asked to have faith so that he could be healed. Jesus doesn't say, do you have faith to be healed? He just says, get up, walk, go. The man didn't respond with gratitude either when he was healed or later when he, when he knew more about who it was that had healed him. You would almost think that this sign is more about Jesus than it is about the man. At the end of verse 9, the Apostle John tells us that Jesus healed the man on the Sabbath. Oh boy. What do you know about any time the Gospels say Jesus did this on the Sabbath? You know that trouble is coming. The Jewish leaders got wind of the miracle. And when they had found the man, they rebuked him. They said, what are you doing carrying your mat? A report has come to us that you picked up your mat and carried it on the Sabbath. They were referring to God's law, of course. But they were incorrect in saying that the law forbade the man from carrying his mat on the Sabbath. While several sorts of restrictions had been given in the law for work on the Sabbath, the Jews had added 39 regulations of their own to cover almost every imaginable circumstance so that, just in case, look, don't, don't eat from that tree, don't even go, don't touch it, don't go close, stay away out of the garden. And God just simply said, don't eat from it. On the Sabbath, he gave some restrictions. And they were more principles sometimes than they were specific commands. There were ideas, but the Jews just kept building on these ideas, adding layer after layer after layer of protection. And when someone, if, if God's command is on this mat and someone is way over here, and they do something right here that the Pharisees would say, Sinner! You can't do that. In fact, if you keep on doing it, you're going to be in real trouble. Jesus was not chiding or mocking the Jewish leaders for observing the Sabbath. But for cheapening 
He was challenging them for cheapening God's beautiful provision for his people in the law with the Sabbath by adding their own regulations in what turned out to be a very powerful tool for controlling the people, especially the poor. Some of the traditions that the, that the, that the Pharisees had added were rich. Here's one. <clears throat> On the Sabbath, a man may borrow of his fellow jars of wine or jars of oil, provided that he does not say to him, lend to me, lend me them. So in other words, if I go to John Bart and say, John, can I borrow a jar of oil? He's like, sure. Yeah, just make sure you get, get it back whenever you get a chance. Um, that's, a, that's not allowed. But if I were to walk over to John and say, oh, John, oh, brother, I have no oil. He might say, why, brother Brad, here is a jar of oil. Take it. It's yours. It's a gift from me. But everybody would understand if I don't pay him back, he's going to have business with me. You know, so it's just we're denying. It's kind of like we do it all the time. It's kind of like. Someone says, what did you do yesterday afternoon? Oh, I went to the library and studied. You failed to say that you also spent two hours playing video games or watching Netflix and that you spent an hour with someone in the coffee shop. It's just, I went to the library and studied. And we, what, what, what do you do when you say I went to the library and studied when somebody, you know somebody really wants you to know or wants to know what you did and you get away with it. You feel pretty good about yourself, don't you? You feel like, I'm in charge of this. So I can hide who I really am. So you think that these religious laws were intended to restrict people's activity, but they were every bit as much about covering sin as they were avoiding sin. We just had ways of doing it and functioning. So when the religious leaders called out the healed man for working on the Sabbath, the man of excuses, as Michael Card calls him, said, uh, it was that man that healed me. It wasn't me. It was that man that healed me. He's the one that told me to carry my, my mat. Sounds like the garden, doesn't it? This woman that thou gavest me, it was her fault. No, not my fault. It's the snake's fault. After the leaders left, it was Jesus' turn to seek out the man. He found him and he said, See, you are well. Sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. So what did he do? Oh, thank you. Thank you so much. No, he went immediately to the leaders and ratted out Jesus. He just said, you know what? I can tell you who it was. Don't be upset with me. I can, I can point you to the guy who told me to do what I did. I mean, what do you make of all this? I, I think most of us tend to assume that anyone Jesus healed was saved in the process, that they now had a relationship with Jesus. I don't know here. I don't know that that's necessarily true. I, I thought a lot this week about the ten lepers that Jesus healed, and only one came back to thank Jesus. And it moved Jesus. It moved him so much. And he said, where do you think the other nine are? You don't think they're out there feeling general 
feelings of gratitude, do you? And if you had been healed of leprosy, you would feel, you would have those general feelings of gratitude. But they didn't come back and specifically thank him. And it's like, what's up with that? It's kind of like common grace. We're all blessed with the blessings of the Lord, but some recognize it at a different level. There's an, every indication in my, my thinking anyway that this man did not recognize God's grace in his life. Jesus comments to the man that he best not keep on sinning or something worse would be his fate. And he may be indicating here, likely indicating his spiritual condition. Probably what Jesus was saying was your physical Infirmity may have been your identity all these years. But that's never been your real problem. Your real problem's in your heart. And if something is not done about your heart, you're going to spend eternity without me. I've healed you, but you seem to be far more concerned about your standing in this world than you do about the one who healed you. Be careful. So my conclusion is that the man was not saved. Jesus was calling for full allegiance and trust as he always did. But the man missed who Jesus was. Even though we look at this man and his lack of faith puzzles us, it should be more puzzling that the religious leaders rejected Jesus, missing the Messiah who was right before their eyes. They had much more information, much more study. The scriptures, as Jesus will say <coughs> next week, should have pointed them to him. They should have guessed who Jesus was, but they were blinded by their own desire for power and to be good enough to be commended by God. Someone told me one time, oh, I think so-and-so is going to be in heaven. Uh, she, was all, she was so good to cats. I was thinking, where is that in this, you know, can you, I, I don't, I'm not familiar with that verse. And as a pastor, I should be, you know. Um, Really, thinking that we're good enough based on anything is almost as silly as that. Why did Jesus heal the lame man? And why did he heal him on the Sabbath? Perhaps to provoke the leaders. Jesus was, in a sense, looking for a fight. Remember, even though Jesus had deep compassion when he healed people and when he met people's needs, his miracles were far more about pointing to him than about pointing to the people that he had healed and their faith. That's why the miracles are called signs. So Jesus indeed intended to uh, provoked the, the Pharisees by healing on the Sabbath, he accomplished his mission because they were upset. So let's think for just a moment. Why was it that the Sabbath was so important? 
to the Jews. Once again, it's not that Jesus was mocking the Sabbath. He was mocking their misunderstanding, misapplication in their uh, perversion of God's laws about the Sabbath. In, in Genesis 2, God sanctified the Sabbath when he finished his work of creation. From one perspective, when you think about it, the Sabbath was the only festival that was mentioned in the Ten Commandments. The Sabbath was a festival of sorts. It it's a joyous time. Today, when people celebrate the Sabbath, they really celebrate. It's a joyous time. And so God said, keep my Sabbath. Keep this day holy. Furthermore, the Sabbath was a sign between God and his people that marked his relationship with them as much as anything. In Exodus 31, 13, God said to Moses, you are to speak to the people of Israel and say, above all, above all, you shall keep my Sabbaths, for this is a sign between me and you throughout your generations that you may know that I, the Lord, sanctify you. Now, Hebrews, we've studied several years ago, tells us that Jesus is the fulfillment of the Sabbath rest. Everything is wrapped up in Jesus. Everything the Old Testament was pointing to, wrapped up in Jesus. Sabbath rest, temple, land, everything, it's all wrapped up in Christ, fulfilled in him the law. But when God says this and they don't understand who Jesus is, they're saying, oh, no, you're really messing with something very important. And that's why they wanted to kill him. It would be fair to say that along with the temple and temple worship, Israel's commitment to keeping the Sabbath marked their relationship with God more than anything else. You know, the Roman Empire made concessions for all kinds of groups of people, but they just let the Jews be the Jews. Look, they're not going to do any work on Saturday. I can tell you from sundown Sunday night till sundown Saturday night, you can expect nothing out of them. Don't mess with their temple. People have done it. it it's trouble. Just leave them alone. They were that committed, and they thought God was blessing their activities. Look at how the, even the world it lets us alone and lets us do what we want to. See, here's the thing. God intended for the people's identity not to be in the temple, not to be in the Sabbath, but to be into him. The Sabbath and the temple were indications of a personal relationship with him. That's like baptism and the table. They, they point us to Jesus, and we consider them to be very important, and we commune with the Lord in a very special way. But when we confuse the sign with the reality, then we can start to go in the wrong direction. But look, this is why the Jews who had allowed this, keeping the Sabbath to be more important than the Lord of the Sabbath added 39 regulations to the law, including the most relevant one for this incident, which was a prohibition for taking aught from one domain into another. Now look, you read the Old Testament laws, Exodus, go into Deuteronomy about the Sabbath. 
the laws are designed to, for people not to work, not especially not to conduct business on the Sabbath, which is a posture of trust, is it not? You got a new business up and running? How many days a week are you working on it? Seven days a week. The Lord said, why don't you trust me enough to work six days out of the week? Would you trust me enough to get all of this done and give a day where you and I commune at a very special level? But the Pharisees had determined that carrying something from one place to another, regardless of the circumstances, was work. The Pharisees may have determined that, but God had not. So when they accused Jesus of violating the Sabbath, not only did he correct their misunderstanding of the law, but he told them that he was equal to the law giver. What, what, what does he mean in verse 17? John chapter 5, verse 17. Jesus answered them, My father is working until now, and I am working. I also am working is what he was saying. Doesn't Genesis 2 tell us that after six days of creation, God rested from all his works? Well, yes, but it means that he rested from his creative work. If God is sovereign, then at this very moment, he is holding the world together. And you would have had no trouble convincing the Jewish leaders of this. They believe that. Their statements, I just didn't have time to write some of their statements for you to see how that they get it, that God is working. <clears throat> There's, they understand that. <clears throat> but how do you think they feel when Jesus said, well, my father is working and I'm working also? See the point? Jesus is like, I'm God. And they're like, oh, we got a real problem. And they wanted to kill him. This conflict was foreshadowed in the prologue of John's gospel. If you will remember, he came to his own and his own people did not receive him. Love the way that Neil Manning uh, puts this. He said the Jews had not only some sense, but they had an expectation of a divine Messiah, whatever that means. They just didn't want it to be Jesus. It's not you. We know what we're looking for, and it's not you. In next week's text, Jesus is going to challenge the leaders directly about their inability to see what is right in front of their eyes. We can only conclude that they refuse to believe the evidence that was placed before them. The evidence is plenty of evidence was given to them. You know, it can be somewhat amusing to see an adult who comes to Christ just suddenly plucked from the domain of darkness and put into the, the, this beautiful place of light in which Christ shines in everything they do. And they turn around and say, I, how can people not see this? It's so clear. I mean, let's not remember that two months ago it was crazy to you but now all of a sudden you can see why do people miss Jesus when it seems so clear to those who believe I want us to think about three reasons that people remain in darkness and as we think about these three reasons please recognize 
For the third time at least today, dear brothers and sisters in Christ, these tendencies hinder believers as well, which is why preach the gospel every day to yourself. The first thought is this. Pain can easily distract those whose best hope is to trust in Jesus. Trusting in Jesus is the best hope for all of us. Pain can move us toward the Lord or away from Him. Sometimes it may be the type of pain or the level of pain that we experience. I've always wondered why the lame man by the pool of Bethesda could respond to Jesus the way he, he did when Jesus asked him, do you want to be healed? I mean, he, he may have had no idea who Jesus was, but whether he knew or not, his response indicated that he had just accepted his lot in life and the best he could do was just complain about it. Be bitter about it. Get people to feel sorry for him. I just don't know anybody like that besides the one I look in the mirror every day, at every day. Many of us find some level of comfort in our pain. And if the truth were known, a deliverance from that which has become our identity would throw everything so out of kilter and off balance that it would create an unacceptable insecurity. I might have pain, but at least I know how to deal with it. I know how to navigate life. I wouldn't doubt that one of the great hindrances to people coming to Christ, especially in our day, is a notion that life is unfair. I mean, it might be, why did this happen to me? Or it could be, how is it, why is it so bad for other people when it's so good for many, including myself? Either way, the conclusion may be this. If there is a God and life is unfair, which it is, then if God exists, he must be unfair. I do believe that he exists deep down, and so I think it is unfair. Actually, isn't it funny how the people that don't believe in God so much spend so much time criticizing God, so much time complaining about God and the ways of the world, and if only, when we do that, if only I were in charge, life would be so good. Has something happened in your life that is keeping you from trusting Jesus? It's no mistake that you're here this morning. It's no accident. Our tendency to view God and His character through our pain is a mistake it has eternal consequences. The lame man's identity was in his disability, but Jesus identified his real problem. It was a heart problem. I don't think Jesus was saying that the man's disability was caused by sin. A lot of people think that, you know, Jesus saying, okay, you, sin got you into this trouble and it's going to put you right back. I don't think that's what he was saying. I was thinking, I think he was saying, if you don't believe in me, 
then the consequences are far greater than being lame. If you don't believe in me, you will experience an eternity of God's judgment for the sin that is a part of human nature and will condemn all men and women if I had not come to take away the sins of the world. He didn't say it in exactly those words, but this thought is going to be developed and proclaimed all through the Gospel of John. Do not allow your pain to keep you from Jesus, but rather contemplate, contemplate all human pain in view of the cross. Think of the pain of the cross. Not just the physical, but the, the, the spiritual when Jesus took our sins. An eternity worth of our sins upon himself. And bore the wrath of God. And while your concern for the plight of those who suffer is not only noble, it's worthy of the life and heart of one who would follow Jesus. He's constantly telling us, help those who are in need. We're going to talk about this a lot more when we get to Jesus saying, the poor you will always have with you. Might not mean, he doesn't mean ignore the poor. He's saying, of course you're to take care of the poor. But there are some things that are greater priority. When you look at the pain all around you, recognize that one day you are going to give an account before God. And no excuses are going to matter then. Only thing that's going to matter is how you respond to this question. What did you believe about Jesus? What did you do with him? Our pain tempts us to reject Jesus. The second hindrance to seeing Jesus seems to be on the other end of the spectrum. A thirst for power makes it impossible to think beyond this life. Look, the Pharisees started off pretty good three to four centuries before Jesus. Ezra, likely the first <clears throat> Pharisee, they understood why they were being punished because of their sin. So we need to keep, we need to love and keep God's law. They quit forgetting about loving the one who had given the law, and they just said, we're going to love these regulations. In fact, we don't think they're enough. We're going to add a lot more, and we're going to love keeping the law. We're going to love being able to say, I did this, this, and this. Therefore, I've checked all the boxes. I'm good. The law became the end goal. So rules and regulations were just continually added, and the interpretation went well beyond what God had required. The leaders eventually recognized that they were more, that they more than restri restricted, the more they restricted the activities of those who were under their leadership, the more power and control that they were able to exert. It's insightful to see individuals who have a sincere desire and vision for a better life for everyone slowly become power-hungry to a point that they will do anything to achieve their goals, all the while being confident that they are doing the right thing for, for humanity while silencing those who oppose them. It's where we are in our political landscape. <clears throat> Just say it. I don't care which side you're on. Utopian impulses 
always lead to violence. They always lead to control. Sooner or later, it's going to be stamp out the opposition. Destroy those who oppose you. That's what happened to the Pharisees who sought to kill Jesus. For the good of the people, of course. Now, look, this happens in contemporary life as well. C.S. Lewis talked about the danger of the inner ring. What he was saying is there are groups of people who seem to be the it group. There's this group of people. Now, you may disagree with them. In fact, you may mock them. You may say, I don't want to have anything to do with that. But inside, you harbor this well, if I just could be a part of that, but I know I never can, so I don't care about them. And then one day you say something and they say, whoa, that's really impressive. Here, we'll put this seat at the table for you. And so you become a part of the inner ring. Before you know it, you are changing all kinds of your principles and values. You're giving up on them because you'll do anything once you're a part of the inner ring to stay a part of that group. A teeny taste of power becomes an unquenchable thirst for power. And when power is your goal in life, you cannot think beyond this life because all that matters is right now. You may have thought when I mentioned this point about power, you're like, okay, that's not me. Uh, it, it may be more you than you think. That's what the Pharisees did. They talked about God in heaven, but they were far more interested in power than in Jesus. And the third and final hindrance from seeing Jesus as a sin that they indulged in, and we all do as well. Pride refuses to allow one to accept the truth, the reality, that salvation is beyond human achievement. Not only did God call for complete submission to his lordship, but he knew that humility was absolutely necessary for salvation. Perhaps that's why the first words, the first words in the Sermon on the Mount were, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the humble, those who come not with anything to offer, but needy to the Lord. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The Pharisees were far too proud to see Jesus. They were convinced that salvation was achieved by keeping the law. And you can read that into the scripture. You can go to scripture and if you don't read it with an open heart and mind, you can see it. But once the Lord opens your eyes, it's everywhere. Human achievement will never cause you to stand before God worthy. They were convinced that salvation was achieved by keeping the law, by being good enough. But Jesus made it clear no one is good enough. That's why he came to earth. To die on the cross, absorb the wrath of God that we deserve because of our sins. Maybe the best example of the difference between pride, and, pride that destroys and humility that saves was told by Jesus in a parable that he shared near the end of his ministry on on earth. And we're going to close this morning by reading Luke 18, verses 9 to 14. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, 
standing by himself, prayed thus. God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all I get. The tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. But the one who humbles himself will be exalted. It's not just that life is too short to be consumed with bitterness or dominated by a lust for power or too proud to yield. It's that eternity is too long. One more time. It's not just that life is too short to be consumed with bitterness or dominated by a lust for power or too proud to yield. It's that eternity is too long. Let's pray. Father, it is our temptation to do the very thing we are warned against. To say, well, I'm glad I'm not like that. Lord, that's exactly who we are naturally. All of these things. Power can come in so many forms. Domination. Passive aggressive. Pride, we all know about that. An identity in a day of identity politics and social strata. Lord, we, we're just constantly measuring ourselves against others and, and finding ways for people to give us a pass or accept us as we are. Lord, we pray that you would remove the clouds from our eyes and that in our humility we would see Jesus. Lord, as this benevolence offering is taken this morning, we pray that you would move on our hearts to participate in this way that we share the goodness and the beauty and the love of the Lord that leads to an open heart to the gospel. Father, we pray your blessings on it. And on us as we go our ways this week. Thank you so much for the graduates. And for the beautiful ceremony this morning. That affirmed them. And also uh, Lord challenged us to remain engaged with our graduates. As they go to serve and love and walk with you. uh, Beginning in these years away from home. We love you and commit ourselves to you in Christ's name. Thank you for listening to audio from Grace Community Church, located in North Carolina. Feel free to make copies of this audio content to share with others. But please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. For more information about Grace Community Church, 
go to graceccnc.org.